Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. In their annual report, the IRS identified $2.3 billion in tax fraud schemes in 2020. As the 2021 tax season continues, it's important that businesses make sure they're doing everything they can to protect their businesses, money, and people. To discuss what businesses can do to bolster their protection against tax season fraud and what to look for when it comes to spotting malicious activity, I've asked Robert Capps to the program. Robert Capps is the Vice President of Marketplace of Innovation at New Data Security. He has over 20 years of experience in the design, management, and protection of complex information systems, leveraging people, process, and technology to counter cyber risks. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about what you're seeing in the in the cyberspace. Like, What are you seeing that businesses should be concerned about? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I think that the biggest concern is just the amount of consumer and business data that is awash on the internet. Um, right. You know, we've seen so many data breaches over the last couple of years, but you know, data breach uh, as a as a means of fraud goes back a decade or more. And as more and more data is out there, um, it's being combined with other breach data, and they're getting better and better, more complete records about consumers and businesses. And that information is readily usable and readily used by fraudsters to impersonate organizations and people. And we've talked about this both on the program on on my blog before, because I've actually been pretty militant. I, I spoke a couple of years ago, I spoke with IRS CI about some of these um, schemes that they're seeing. And yeah. one of the things they was talking about is that a lot of the, the information that the criminals get, they get from legitimate businesses. Like we tend to think about the idea that, you know, this is all dark web, but it starts somewhere. And a lot of times right. it's at a legitimate business where you're giving information to a business that might not store it properly, or there may be an employee that is tempted to sell the data. So one of the things I used to say on the consumer side is just to be really aware about how much data you're giving out. Like sometimes yeah. you'll fill out these forms and the story, I wrote a story about um, going to my um, child's doctor's appointment and the number of questions that they asked me that felt really intrusive, not just about like medical history I get at a doctor's office, but we're asking really intrusive financial questions. And I understand it was because they were looking to make sure, you know, we were good credit risk and there was insurance <laughs> and all of that information. But at some point, you know, I don't know that you need to know how many years of college I have. So, you know, what are ways that businesses can be smart about the kinds of data they ask for, because I do think that sometimes it starts there. I mean, I know at our law firm, we used to have a, an intake form that we actually changed after I had this experience at the doctor's office, because I'm like, <laughs> you know what, maybe we don't need all of this information in our office either. So what kinds of ways maybe can businesses pay back or do you recommend they do it? Is it a storage issue or is it a volume issue? Well, it, it's a usefulness issue. What What is the data that you actually need? to complete the effort that you're trying to undertake. And so if it's a billing issue, right, you're, you're in a medical facility or medical office and you need to bill insurance or bill the consumer, I mean, that's going to be a very different amount of information that you need than, say, what your e-commerce 
company that you do business with requires mm-hmm. or what your business partner requires to do um, payments between two organizations. Each organization really needs to take a hard look at the forms that they have, at the information they collect, and how they store it. Because in a lot of cases, there are regulatory requirements in different areas of the country and in in different areas of the world about what data you can collect and what you can ask for anymore. And when you do have it, you have a a custodial responsibility to maintain that information as securely as possible. And one of the things you talked about a moment ago was the the fact that this data, the the, the data that's being used by cyber criminals to do impersonation of humans and of businesses comes from legitimate organizations. It is data breaches that happen for companies that um, have legitimately collected, or maybe they've over-collected, but but the data was initially provided for legitimate purposes. And in most cases, you know, there's human error involved. Almost all the breaches, over 95% of the breaches that have happened so far to date are a result of human error, not intentional malice on the part of an employee, whether they were storing data unencrypted, or they were storing it in a place that didn't have proper controls, or they responded to a phishing email, you know, a malicious email that's intent on getting, a, you know, legitimate consumer credentials or business credentials so that actual accounts can be accessed by a fraudster. All of these things are, are human elements that result in the loss of information. And these are the same kind of issues we see, the same sort of vulnerabilities that exist around tax time um, that exists around uh, banking information, financial fraud, e-commerce fraud, commercial transaction fraud. There's just so many places that if you can impersonate a legitimate consumer or business with their accounts, you can do real damage to that organization or that person. And when you talked a moment ago about businesses and you know the kinds of data that they take in, and what kinds of protections they're required to follow. You know, you, you mentioned that that can be different from state to state. Obviously, a really large company like an Amazon is going to have the resources to know what those uh, restrictions and protections might be. How mm-hmm. do smaller companies figure that out if they're dealing with data that might be used in more than one state? Yeah, I think you can start with, if you're a business and you're collecting information, how you're collecting it is going to probably dictate where your customers are. And so uh, if you're a local business and you're collecting information on paper forms, it's unlikely you're going to be dealing with a lot of interstate commerce, <laughs> you know, unless you're close to a border and someone crosses over to do business with you. Right. But, you, you know, if you're in California and you're a small mom and pop shop, you know, a repair, a auto repair place or something, and you have an intake form for your customers, you're unlikely to get a lot of people from Pennsylvania or New York uh, walking in your front door and filling out information. (laughs) So you probably don't have to worry too much about interstate uh, differences with the rules. Now, if you're doing business online, you really have no idea where your customers are coming from. But there's good news there. If you're doing business online, you're probably, if you're a small enough organization, you're probably relying on a third-party service provider to provide information for you. And it's appropriate for organizations doing business online to have this conversation with their service provider. How do you help me protect my information? What can you help me do to stay compliant with California rules and the New York rules and the um, Illinois rules and the Oregon rules and all those sort of things? Because every every area seems to have a different take on privacy and security and, and, and what you can and can't ask for and how you have to store it. Right. 
And so when you talk about breaches, I actually have kind of a two-part question then. So you've asked these questions. So let's say on the business side first. So you've asked these questions and you feel like you're doing the right thing and you feel like you're storing your data appropriately. How do you know when there's been a breach? Because I do know that, you know, there there have been instances where these companies, especially, you know, big companies didn't find out that there had been a problem until months later. So how does that happen? Like, how do you find out? And then on the consumer side, how do you find out? Well, (laughs) that's is a very interesting question. A lot of organizations find out that there's been a data breach because someone tells them their data is for sale on the internet or it's available on the dark web or it's been posted to an anonymous uh, disclosure site. Which is an unfortunate way to find out. (laughs) It's a really bad way to find out. (laughs) You're going to have a really bad week after that because once you understand that you had a breach, you've got to understand what was taken, when it was taken, and just how bad the issue was so that you can comply with um, data breach disclosure laws. Again, getting into the different uh, areas, different states, different countries have different regulations about how you need to engage with folks whose data has been compromised and on what timeline and what your actions need to be. And again, it's a patchwork of regulation. There's no one standard for uh, response. Mm -hmm. How do consumers know? Often the same way that their data shows up on one of these sites that we talked about a moment ago or one of the services we talked a moment ago. And there are services out there that scrape that information. They have computer programs and, and such that monitor the dark web and they monitor these disclosure sites. And, you know, and some of these companies have, have folks that are on the inside of these criminal rings, uh, that they are you know, essentially moles looking for <laughs> information information dumps and stuff and using that information to then alert consumers to subscribe to their services. Wow. Uh, There are a number of credit card companies, MasterCard being one of those, MasterCard being the parent company of of new data that has um, information management tools and breach disclosure tools for cardholders. There are a number of other organizations that consumers probably do business with now that might have a similar service that they can subscribe to without paying anybody anything. There are commercial services that consumers can subscribe to. Most of the credit agencies have data disclosure notification services you can subscribe to. Varying pricing, varying level of detail and efficacy of the data that's coming back with all the different solutions, uh, just because there's such a patchwork of information out there that needs to be analyzed. But you can, as a consumer, get a handle on when your data is out there. Now, That's the good news. The bad news is that there have been so many data breach records that have been released that if you take into account the number of humans who connect to the internet, the multiple of that number has been released online in regards to data records. So um, for every human who accesses the internet, there's probably been six to eight, possibly even 10 data breaches per human. And so with that being the case, you just have to assume your data is out there. I was going to ask you about that because when you were talking about like all these services and I understand that some of them can be valuable, yes. but it does seem, because I subscribe, I have an email um, one that I subscribe to that, you know, mm-hmm. will let you know when there's been reported breaches of passwords for mail services, that kind of thing. But yep. at some point, you know, you, I, you get pitched all the time, all of these, right. uh, these services that are supposed to protect you. And again, I understand there are varying degrees of success. Uh, involved. But 
But what you just said about assuming that your data ha- is out there, that is kind of one of the things that I always assume. I mean, I, I, I don't, my husband and I think very differently about this because he works with uh, ISPs and um, he does a lot of computer law. So he and I have very different conversations about this, but uh, on a consumer side, just because I deal, a lot of what I deal with is ID theft of taxpayers. So I don't right. see as what he sees. Um but you know, it's it's interesting because you hear all these people tell you all of these steps to take, right? Like freeze your credit, and like do all of these things. But yep. if you're going to assume that it's out there, you can't do that every time. So so what do you do? Well, I, actually, I think you're on the right path. If you assume that your data is out there, you then need to take a position of protecting yourself against use of that data. And so I, I absolutely recommend folks freeze their credit with all the bureaus. Okay. For how long? Forever. <laughs> so that's my recommendation to folks who, who ask me this question. So that's my rec- recommendation for people who ask that question about what do I do to protect myself? Start with a credit freeze. You can always unfreeze it when you need credit. You can always provide a pin to specific creditors that you're trying to do business with. But as of right now, the best protection for your, your, your credit is to keep it frozen uh, at all times. Beyond that, getting off of mailing lists, moving to electronic delivery of documents, moving to electronic delivery of, of bills, um, all of those things reduce the amount of paper that's being mailed to you and, and is sitting in mailboxes. So also reduces the potential uh, exposure of data breach and a compromise due to stolen or, or misdelivered mail. So see, this is where, but this is where everybody who's listening to this podcast, who's a tax professional, yeah. say not my taxpayers, is taking a kind of, you know, they're all shaking their heads because that's impossible <laughs> to do with the yeah. IRS. Now it with may be, a, mm-hmm. it may be something that you could do with like California Franchise Board or, you know, PA Revenue, like there are ways that you can do things electronically. But the IRS is very paper oriented still. I, I mean, they encourage Sadly. you to e-file, but yet right. if you are, <laughs> but if you're, you know, if you're amending returns with with a few exceptions, they just introduce some e-filing, but right. you're still doing that by paper. There's a lot of forms that have to be filed by paper. It's still a lot of paper. So you you know, that's that's kind of the 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 problem, right? Like you, you know, you you see what you could be doing differently, but it's really difficult to make that jump. Yeah, it is. But also keep in mind, there are no silver bullets. There are no 100% solutions when it comes to security. Sure. There is risk reduction and there is, um, you know, good enough. Uh, if you can cut <laughs> your inbound mail by 50%, that's 50% less likelihood that you're going to be subject to a, 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 an important mail theft. Right. And so it's just moving towards reducing the probability that you'll be a victim versus eliminating all risk because there's just no safety. There's no, there's no 100% safety in life. And so um, it's all about risk remediation and, and risk minimization wherever possible. If, if the last year and a half hasn't taught us anything, <laughs> that's right, definitely right. the case. You know, so, so we talk about credit freeze. We talk about minimizing the amount of paper you're receiving in the mail. Also, you know, it's, it's simple things like not reusing usernames and passwords. One of the largest problems that we have today for existing consumer accounts is account takeover. And the vast majority of accounts that are taken over are taken over because of a consumer who's reused the same username and password across multiple sites. 
And that username and password was, was uh, breached or stolen in a data breach. Do you recommend like services for for passwords? Because I know that one of the frustrations a lot of people have, and you know, um, the comedian uh, Michael McIntyre did a whole bit on this, <laughs> yeah. is that yeah. you know, there's always well, it has to be six letters, and then it has to be six letters in a character, but you can't use an exclamation point, and you know, it becomes very difficult. <laughs> do you recommend yeah. using like an auto-generated password or phrases? Yeah. Or, okay. I, I do. I, I, I recommend auto-generated passwords in some sort of a password uh, safe. Okay. There are uh, many, many, many different solutions out there. Um, some that are just software on a mobile device or a computer, some that are cloud-based. Y- you really have to pick one that you feel comfortable with and, and sort of stick with it. One of the things that, that I'll also recommend for some folks is a paper, a paper password journal. Okay. And I'm going to break with most security folks who go, no, not paper. Don't write it down. <laughs> you can't electronically steal a journal. And as right. long as you maintain security of that physical object, put it in a safe, put it in a locked drawer, maintain custody of it at all times, you're unlikely to have your password stolen. That is actually the same advice I will tell you that an IP person once told me because I was yep. keeping, um, oh, first of all, I kept forgetting them because you know you can't remember <laughs> 20 million. Right. And I did yeah. have a, a service, but then I also was keeping a running tab on my computer and they're like, no, write it down. And I'm like, how is that different? And he said, because if someone can get into your computer, then everything is there. But, you know, they're not going to know where in your house you've, you've written everything down, except he did tell me that one of the things he sees all of the time is people who write their passwords down and stick it to the computer. So he said, especially in workplaces, you know, that people need to yeah. stop doing that. But yeah. Or under the keyboard. Also, That's my yeah. favorite. <laughs> yeah. So I completely agree. And, and I think that that sticky note on the monitor situation is the reason why most security professionals say don't write down your password. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that people don't secure it once they write it down. But, okay. you know, there are paper password journals that you can buy on on various e-commerce sites or in bookstores and things like that that are configured to be able to, you know, write out the characters and 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 to, to make them very legible so that, you know, you don't fall victim to what I usually do, which is, is that a three or a... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> which is my problem. My handwriting is horrible. Um, I grew up around the internet and online. So like I, I use a pen, nah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is a good security practice as long as you maintain good security of that document and that you protect it and you put it away. And, and to frankly, it's a really good way in case anything ever happens to you. Definitely don't want to think too hard about, you know, the, the morbid issues there, but um, having some level of access to your passwords for family in the case of a, a, a you know, a bad situation is it's important. Right. Well, so. in, so since you mentioned uh, family, um, mm-hmm. one of the other kind of things that I know, uh, especially tax professionals struggle with is this idea of two-factor authentication. So I suspect yeah. you're probably going to tell us that's a good thing. But one of the challenges that we can find, and I've actually found this with a lot of my older clients, is mm-hmm. that they find it frustrating or they don't have access to a smartphone yep. or you know, th- there may be other challenges. So if folks, so first of all, what are your thoughts on two-factor authentication? And two, if you don't have access to a smartphone, is there something else you can do? Yeah. Uh, my thoughts on two-factor authentication, it's overused. One of the reasons, you know, being at at New Data, we, of course, have products and solutions, and I won't get into a pitch or anything like that. But 
one of our core tenants is that you do not want to challenge consumers that don't need to be challenged. Mm -hmm. And so putting every customer through a two-factor challenge, putting them all through high friction, high impact events, like having to pull out a token, a physical computing token that it's going to put to put out a one-time password or having to have a smartphone with an app. It's all friction. It's all hassle. And it's all something sitting in front of a consumer or, or someone who's doing business sitting between them and, and the transaction they really want to be doing. They don't want to be authenticating. They want to be transacting. Right. And so um, you really have to be intelligent about how you challenge consumers. And you really need to have a, a, a good idea of who your consumers are that you do business with. Right. Because that's a huge issue. If you're dealing with a primarily senior population um, that don't necessarily have smartphones, you need to think about how you're going to service those customers in a two-factor authentication situation where you can't rely on an application being installed on a mobile phone. Now, we still use things like SMS, text messages, to send mm -hmm. one-time codes, and those work on any phone that's SMS capable. Obviously, there are issues with SMS because they rely on the cell phone network. There are a lot of vulnerabilities that have been, um, have been shown where one could potentially reroute those messages or, or steal those messages from a legitimate consumer who's receiving them. Right. But it's still an accessible and useful mechanism for certain classes of customers who you have no other option. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think it has a place if we don't overuse it. And you really have to take it in, uh, into account who you're interacting with, who your consumer is when you design systems like this. One size does not fit all when it comes to consumer authentication. I guess I, one of the things that you're saying about not being, you know, one size fits all is probably one of, I think, consumer frustrations generally with uh, security. I think on some yeah. level, we're kind of having this security fatigue, right? Like we're always- <laughs> Challenge asked, fatigue, yeah. Yeah, definitely. exactly. You're asked for your password. You're asked to, to authenticate it. I have two separate um, authentication code services on my cell phone because, you know, yep. the companies don't use the same company. Uh, they don't use the same service for uh, the, the codes, the code generators. Yep. So, yep. you know, you get really tired of it. And on some level, I think sometimes that kind of lead, leads to consumers being a little sloppy because we're, we're tired. So how can businesses use best practices to not fatigue their customers, but at the same time, make sure that they're being, you know, they're being secure. And again, I understand that you're saying there's no one solution. So I don't expect everybody to be getting out their pens and you telling them, you know, in the next, <laughs> next right. 20 seconds how to do it all. But like, generally speaking, like, what are some concepts that they can think about? Like, I know you mentioned early on in the program, you know, only asking for what you need. Um, right. But what other kinds of things can you advise businesses about to make sure that they're not, again, over, over challenging the consumer? Because I can tell you, especially in the tax and accounting world, tax professionals are handling a lot of sensitive data. And oh, so man. a lot of mm -hmm. times there are, you know, sometimes there are hoops that you jump through that you can't get around. Like they're just certain because of the, you know, the Dodd-Frank and other other rules that are going to require you to um, to store data and to protect it in certain ways. But yeah, at what point do you say, here are the things you can be a little less stringent about? Like, do you break data down into different categories? Like, how do you encourage businesses to be smart about protecting data while not exhausting their customers. Yeah, so <laughs> there's probably like seven things in there. <laughs> so let oh, me I know. It's a kind lot. of pull out the way. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, but but, but the, you're illustrating the consumer issue, which is that we've built, We when I say we, highly technical people have built mechanisms to allow humans to identify themselves online. 
mm-hmm. often without the concept of how a human interacts online and the variety of humans that are doing the interactions. And I, I think that if we take a step back, it comes back to that point I made a moment ago. Understand your consumer, understand their capabilities. And I'll add one more thing understand the risks you're trying to mitigate. Okay. And once you understand those three things, you can absolutely start to craft solutions that don't inconvenience customers and do increase the security of the underlying systems. Okay. And it just takes some critical thinking. And for some organizations, especially smaller ones, finding a trusted partner to help you, whether that's the provider that provides your business operating system, whatever it happens to be, the business platform you use for you know doing business with your customers, or even, um, you know, as we get into tax time, we talk about consumers and businesses. There's a big issue with social engineering of companies and getting tax documents from those companies in regards to human, you know, individual consumers that work for, uh, I'm sorry, individual humans who work for those companies mm-hmm. and getting their tax documents and getting more information about them from their employers uh, in order to do things like tax fraud in the consumer's name. And so you really need to engage with your your service providers, your, your platform providers, and ask them how they can make it easier for your employees and for your customers to do business with you or interact with your systems without unduly um, inconveniencing them or putting everybody through the same high friction challenge mechanisms. And understanding the actual risk of an interaction, looking at the context when the transaction or the interaction is occurring, as well as who's doing it. Once you understand some of those data elements, you can start to apply different policies and different mechanisms for authenticating users without high friction events. Gotcha. And the outcome of all that is happier users, but mm-hmm. also much more difficult to circumvent systems when it comes to malicious activity. And speaking of so malicious activity, and we talked a little bit about phishing and, and those kinds of, of uh, schemes, you yeah. know, one of the things that I think that IRS struggles with, and and I think small businesses too, is kind of finding that line between having your consumer or taxpayers, you know, have a heightened sense of security without scaring them too, right? So (laughs) I see this and I see this a lot of times in my work, like you will send a link to somebody and, you know, now people are conditioned not to open links and emails. And so you're like, okay, so how do I do this differently? I don't want to send you three emails convincing you who I am. Like, so how do you, um, or, or can you find a, a balance between getting your consumers to trust what you are sending them without, mm-hmm. you know, having them be vulnerable at the same time? And, and I'm sure you see this in credit cards since you, you mentioned earlier, you know, MasterCard, because um, we see this a lot with credit cards. You know, it, I yeah. get probably, what, five of these a day. And, and when do <laughs> I know it's the right one, right? So right, right. How, how can consumers protect themselves and how can businesses condition consumers to protect themselves? It's, it's a hard question. And again, you have to really take into account your customers themselves, right? One of the things I said earlier is try to get as much mail reduced as possible, physical postal mail. But in some cases, sending a letter to an individual at their registered address on official letterhead and all those sort of things, directing them to call the number on the back of their card or to look at one of their statements for, for a phone number or hit up their website for, for contact information and call in so we can have a conversation. It's kind of kludgy. It's kind of a, a, a roundabout way of getting a hold of a consumer, but it maintains a lot of the trust marks and, and best practices that we try to drill into consumers, which is if someone calls you on the phone and says they're from a, a legitimate organization, the best thing to do is to hang up and call that organization back using a number that you know is valid for that, 
for that organization. Right. Don't provide I data. Tell people, yeah, I tell people that all the time with IRS. If someone calls and says that they're from the IRS, hang up and call 1-800-829-1040, which is the IRS's real phone number, and, and say that, you know, someone just called you and we're right. trying to figure out what that's about. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the IRS doesn't generally pick up the phone and call you out of the right. blue. Yes. They send you a letter. Right. Especially older clients, they 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 don't know that, right? So they're because yeah. especially the people who aren't seeing the warnings online, because the IRS right, has right. said this many, many times. But you know, if if someone would, I shouldn't say this, but if someone were to call my mother and say they're from <laughs> IRS, I first of all, if mom's listening, she should t- call me. But um, but you know, I would think that she would want to talk to them. This is, I think, the problem, right? Right, right. That is a huge issue. There, there is there's a cottage industry globally uh, of folks in call centers who place calls to organize or to individuals, specifically those um, that are older, seniors, and 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 such. Or they're also targeting immigrants and other populations that may mm-hmm. not be aware of these fraud schemes that are happening. And what they're doing is they're trying to convince them that their social security number has been suspended for fraudulent activity and that they're about to be deported or they're going to be arrested. And the only way to solve this problem is to go out and get gift cards and read the numbers to them over the phone. Right. And it is heartbreaking to see the number of people who lose thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to one of these scams. Sure. Yeah. And they happen. They work. They, you know, and, and, and the problem is that they're all based upon confidence and they're all based on the human psychology where we want to be helpful, especially when there's potential danger. Mm-hmm. And people are preying on this. And, you know, it's not just IRS scams. It's also coming in as customer service scams from e-commerce sites like Amazon and other sort of things. People purporting to be Amazon call reps. Social security is a big one right now. Social security is a big one. Um, tech support scams, people emulating Apple or Google or Microsoft and pretending to be there helping them get refunds and, and, and other sort of things or fix bugs or, or security problems with their computers. There's just a litany of all these social engineering attacks. And, you know, if we can, as, as various organizations that are probably listening to this podcast, if we could have a concerted effort to make sure that we're beating the drum to our customers that we don't call people and ask for this information. We will do this to get in touch with you. We'll send you an email and we'll ask you to call us back at one of our numbers. Um, we'll We'll do whatever it is that we would normally do and, and be consistent about what it is they do um, in order to con- contact consumers so they know and they can expect. Now, it's not going to solve the problem for everyone. Not everybody gets their statements and reads them. Not everybody, right. you know, reads all pages of a statement or all the fillers or, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm guilty of that too. I just right, toss right. that stuff away. It's going to take a general leveling up of the thought process, the awareness of all consumers before we're going to really get our hands around this issue. Because as long as there have been humans, there have been confidence scams and they go back to the beginning of time. (laughs) And one of the questions I always used to get is, you know, why can't the police catch these guys? And, you know, they, uh, I've talked to the folks at IRS CI and, you know, they're trying, but every time one of them, you shut one of them down, another one pops up and they do that because they work, right? People are, people, as you mentioned, are people fall for the scams, So they keep doing it. I actually have personal experience in this because um, in a previous organization I worked for, I ran the trust and safety and cybercrime part of the organization. And we successfully prosecuted individuals that were involved with scams and frauds. Oh, awesome. And Yeah. And, and when it happens, there is an impact 
on the fraudsters, especially when they see people go to jail. Um, and so as we work through multinational police organizations and prosecu uh, prosecutor organizations to investigate and prosecute these crimes, we will see an impact on the volume that when, when there is an impact on the people that are committing those crimes. And the issue is that um, the wheels of justice, especially when we're dealing with international crime, spin very slowly because right. it, it becomes less of a law enforcement issue and more of a Department of State issue because you have to work through um, the different governments to get permission to even work on a case together. And that process for some countries can be years. Mm -hmm. It's not minutes. It's not months. It's, it's years to get a completion of one of the things. And those guys may have moved on by then. And so the fact that it's so difficult to get these things, these international cases put together for cooperation is a big piece of it. And the fact that these uh, attackers, these cyber criminals are transitory in nature, that they're there one day and they're gone the next, it just makes it to be, it makes it a very hard problem to prosecute and use law enforcement for that purpose. And so right. you're seeing uh, and I don't advocate this for all, but but um, there's some folks that, that are that have YouTube channels that are um, dedicated to exposing the scammers and, and how they work and how they interact and, and who they are. And they're having impact, believe it or not. These, these individuals are having impact because they're working with local law enforcement and turning over identities and turning over scams. And they're getting local law enforcement agencies where these people are to take note. And that's actually working quite well. Well, I was actually going to ask, how can consumers help? Because I do know that um, for the IRS, for example, they do encourage you to report these to cases. The FTC, so, yeah. yeah. So, totally. or, you know, they, to send it to phishing at irs.gov, or there yep. is, um, there are forms online where you can report it. You know, what can consumers do? Because, you know, you hear everybody's version of this, right? And you see it on Twitter. People tell you all the ways that they think they're tricking scammers. <laughs> when in reality, you know, the, yeah. yelling at them isn't really changing anything because, you know, they're no. doing this for a living. They're counting on it's going to be one of a thousand people are going to say yes. They know a lot of people know that they're a scammer. So how can um, consumers outside of, say, IRS, but like credit cards, smaller businesses, how can consumers help businesses put an end to this? I mean, understanding that there's not going to be an end. Yeah. yeah. Stop becoming a victim. You know, one in a thousand. What if it's one in 10,000? Will they go through the effort? And there's a point, right? Even even fraudsters and cyber criminals, there's a point where their time is worth more flipping burgers than it is committing crimes. They'll sure. go flip burgers. Right. And and so um, how do we get that mix change? And I'll speak kind of to the consumer side of, of those listening uh, individuals. Talk to your parents. Talk to your cousins. Talk to your aunts and uncles. Bring the subject up at you know family gatherings once we can have those again. <laughs> but keep this top of mind with folks so they're aware of these scams. You know, it's kind of shocking, but I've passed along some of these um, scam YouTube videos to family members to look at. And they call me back later and they, after they've seen them and they're just shocked that these things occur. But now they know mm -hmm. not to trust that sort of thing. And that's one less person that's a potential victim. So in kind of as a I guess we've talked about a lot of different ways, like what businesses sure can do, what people, <laughs> what people can do. On the consumer side, you, we've talked a lot about not being a victim, you know, yeah. talking about this. If you could leave the consumers with like three key pieces of advice, what would that be? Like if they only remember three things out of this program to do today, what would you tell them? 
the consumer side. Yeah. When you see something that's upsetting, when you see some sort of communication or receive some sort of communication that you want to initially, you know, like immediately viscerally react to, stop, take a step back, think about what you're about to do. That is probably the most important uh, information I could or advice I could provide to anyone who uses the internet or answers the phone. If this thing needs immediate attention, whether they're saying your account's going to be shut off or, you know, we're going to send the U.S. Marshal to arrest you right now if you don't take this action, it's a good opportunity to take a step back. Right. <laughs> you know, ask the person for their phone number, their information and say, I'll get back to you and hang up the phone and step back and and reach out to someone you trust and talk to them about what's going on. And once you actually start talking about what's going on out loud, you'll start realizing they don't do this. U.S. Marshal doesn't just show up at your door right. after a phone call. They just show up at your door. <laughs> right? true, you know, the, the, the IRS isn't going to call you on the phone and demand payment and gift cards. They're going to send you a letter saying you're delinquent or something. Right. And if it's a really big issue, it might be an investigator or the FBI that shows up at your door. People don't call you on the phone and threaten your accounts. They don't send emails saying your account's about to be deactivated with really rough English. These are scams. And um, if they're legitimate issues, everyone's going to give you the opportunity to ask some questions to get some more information. They're not going to pressure you to take action right now. Right. That's something I always stress to my taxpayers is that yeah. if, if they're on the phone, like IRS, for example, there is a collection and appeals process. And if they're telling you there's not one, that's when, you know, you should be concerned. <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, just human beware. If something, if someone's pressuring you to do something, it's probably not legitimate. Right. And so what would be the same kind of like the flip side of that for businesses then? If people were to remember the top takeaway from the program on the business side, what would you want them to remember? It's exactly the same thing. Okay. The individual who's purported to be interacting with you may be your boss, right? Because we have things like business email compromise where, you know, cyber criminals get access to legitimate email addresses mm-hmm. and accounts within a company through phishing or, or data breach, whatever it happens to be. They might be able to emulate an email from the boss's email account. And so understanding that something is out of character, out of pattern, identifying that something's amiss, trust your gut. Take a step back, pick up the phone, call that person who's requesting you to take that action, like transferring money or add a new payee or to go pick up some gift cards. Gift cards come back over and over within these scams. Right. <laughs> yes. so, so much so that when you walk to a store to buy a gift card these days, there's often signs. Yes, I've seen that in the CVS, like a sign that yeah. will tell you. Yeah, it's crazy that that's come to that. Absolutely. It's come to that. Or they've yeah. even limited. You can't buy more than X number of dollars with gift cards in a given day. That's again, it's kind of nutty because, you know, what if you're yeah. buying legitimate graduation presents like this is <laughs> the kind of thing you worry about? Yeah, totally. Thank you so much. This is really good information. So if people wanted to find you after we've mm-hmm. just talked a lot about how we should limit our um, some interactions, but if people wanted to find you <laughs> and you wanted to be found either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? If you want to find me on Twitter, uh, you can find me as rwcaps. R-W-C-A-P-P-S, mm-hmm. or uh, for New Data Security, our website's www.newdatasecurity.com. That's N-U-D-A-T-A-S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y.com. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes so that folks can uh, easily click through. Thank you again. This has been really helpful. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. 
I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.